Welcome to Conversations from the Leading Edge, a monthly radio show and podcast featuring interviews about extraordinary advances in the area of peace and conflict studies happening at or around Columbia University. Each month, we feature interviews with scientists and thought leaders who are conducting groundbreaking work aimed at managing conflict constructively and sustaining peace both locally and globally. My name is Peter T. Coleman, and I'm coming to you from the studios of WKCR at Columbia University. The show is sponsored by AC4, the Advanced Consortium on Cooperation, Conflict, and Complexity at the Earth Institute at Columbia University. And now for today's show. Welcome. This is Peter Coleman. I am a professor of psychology and education at Columbia University, uh, and um, I am today uh, hosting the um, interview with uh, my colleague Larry Leibovich. Um, we are today talking about peace. Um, we're talking about the need for understanding, studying, and sort of eventually modeling and, and working with policymakers around peace. Um, the background of this is that um, we've had a, an eclectic team of uh, scholars and practitioners um, working for the past three years on trying to understand peaceful societies, on trying to do systematic research on uh, understanding the core dynamics of peaceful societies. Um, and um, our colleague uh, uh, Jacqueline Donahue is here as well, who's been coordinating this project. Um, and the premise of this research is that we don't know much about peaceful societies, that the um, international community and scholars for probably 80, 100 years have systematically studied things like war, violence, and aggression, and we study peacemaking and peace building in, in that context sort of coming out of war, but very few scholars have studied peaceful societies, peaceful communities, and what is central to those. We assume that if we understand societies that are not at war that will understand peace, but what they found is that these are very different kind of phenomenon coming out of war or being able to s sustain peace. So we put together a group, which includes my colleague Josh Fisher and Beth Fisher-Yoshida, um, Philip Vandenbroek, uh, and Doug Fry, who's an anthropologist who studies peaceful societies, um, and then Larry Leibovich and Jacqueline Donahue and myself. So that's the group that has been studying this. And part of what's happened over the past three years um, at the United Nations is that they've started to try to think about how to reorganize the peace-building uh, architecture of the UN around the idea of sustaining peace. So moving a little bit away from just mitigating conflict or reducing violence and conflict and trying to understand how do they think more long-term around sustaining peacefulness in communities, in nations, and between nations or globally. Um, so there have been several reports that have come out. And in 2016, the, the General Assembly and the um, Security Council generated to resolu UN resolutions. Uh, and right now, the international community is thinking carefully about this, and they're uh, generating a report that will, uh, the Secretary General will put out uh, at a high-level UN panel meeting. I think it's on April 24th, this spring. Um, so, so in some ways, we've been thinking about this and working on this, and we're a few years into what will probably be a decades-long project. Um, of trying to understand the science behind sustainably peaceful societies, um, which is an immensely complicated thing. 
Um, but it's happening um, through serendipity at a time when the international community and policymakers are trying to think differently about this and trying to think carefully and systematically about this. So we've had some conversations with some policymakers through an organization called the International Peace Institute. They convene UN decision makers and ambassadors and stakeholders, and they bring in academics like us to have conversations about what we think we're learning um, and what that might mean for their work. So that's been an ongoing conversation. Um, and essentially, as I said, the objective of this project is to try to take sustaining peace seriously, to try to understand um, and, and um, identify academic scholars who have been studying sustainably peaceful communities and societies. There are very few of them, but there's a fair amount of relevant, relative or relevant research. Um, so part of what we've been doing, Jacqueline and her team has been going back to look at the published science on that and to bring that together. And we've been trying to, to sort of conceptualize kind of fundamentally, basically, what is at the core of these societies that are able to sustain peace for decades, even 100 years or more. Um, and in that context, Larry Leibovich, um, uh, who is with us today, has um, who has a background in um, astrophysics. He was trained as an astrophysicist. His current title is he's adjunct senior research scientist um, at our consortium, AC4, the Advanced Consortium on Cooperation, Conflict, and Complexity, also a professor of physics and psychology at Queens College in New York. Um, and Larry has worked with nonlinear mathematics in a variety of different areas. I know he's studied disease, he's studied cellular, psychological, and social and molecular systems, um, and he applies mathematical models to understand these systems. Um, they are sometimes have, have some common dynamics and sometimes very different kinds of dynamics. But he's been working, I've been working with Larry for, I don't know, 10, 12 years now, on trying to apply what applied mathematics can offer in terms of how to think about and then model things like sustainable peace. Um, so, Larry, welcome first. So, thank you. Thank you for inviting me here. It's a big, long introduction. Uh, but I wanted to set the context for what I'd like to talk about today because, um, as I said, we've been working in this eclectic team to try to draw on the existing empirical science and then start to understand how we could think about it sort of fundamentally, basically, like what are the basic things that happen in communities that are peaceful, um, and how we might understand how other areas of science, because the science relevant to peace is vast. There's work in neuroscience, political science, economics, history, uh, psychology. There are many disciplines that study things that are relevant to this, um, and what we've been trying to do is use um, a couple of different methodologies that provide kind of a platform to help us connect the dots between all these different areas of science. Um, and one of them is what, what is something that is, comes out of uh, complexity science called causal loop diagramming. And another is then taking those kind of diagrams or visualizations of highly complex things like sustainably peaceful societies and then essentializing them in mathematical models that allow us to build sort of computer visualizations and simulations and learn from those as well. And those are two areas that Larry's worked um, with us on. So maybe, Larry, can you talk a little bit to start about this, uh, what, 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 uh, maybe what complexity science is and then what causal loop diagrams are and how we're trying to use them to help 
get our head around sustainably peaceful societies? Yeah, well, I think uh, one thing that comes out of what Peter's been saying is uh, dealing with whole societies and how people interact with each other and how groups of people interact and how nation states interact is a pretty complex process. And a lot of different things are happening at once, and there are a lot of different moving parts. And uh, as Peter said, my background has been in trying to understand complex systems in a variety of different fields. And what that means are things that have a lot of interactions, and some of those interactions are very strong with each other, and they can produce surprising, pretty surprising results. But the point is try to understand how those little low-level interactions eventually lead to what the whole system is doing. So how do individual decisions that people make about when they're going to drive home lead to a traffic jam, things, things like that. And um, the challenge in understanding peace, or sometimes called positive peace, as opposed to not having a war over the last two years, is that we think and there's a lot of work to support this, that societies have to do a lot of good things in order to make that happen. And those may be social norms or uh, specific functions that the society does or, um, or ways the society handles conflicts or a number of things like that. So what Peter's group has been trying to do is to both identify those issues and try to understand how they connect with each other. And so one way to describe this is something called a causal loop diagram, which I used to misspell as casual loop diagrams, <laughs> but they're not casual. So um, it doesn't mean they're not fun either. But um, uh, basically, it's a way of putting down on paper a picture of what you think is happening in the world. So you can define or list the, the things, the uh, principles or the actions that you think are important, and then you can draw lines from one to the other to try to get a sense of how one thing influences another thing. So, for example, one of these things is positive intergroup reciprocity, uh, which means that if something, someone does something good to you from another group, are you going to do something good for them? Or are you going to kick them in the face or something like that? Will you respond positively if they're positive? And um, then we can draw a line from that, for example, to a different variable like uh, positive future expectations. If people are doing good things for each other, maybe that has an effect on what they think the future is going to be. So you can start to draw a diagram of how this thing connects to that thing. And this diagram can be relatively simple and have eight variables, which we think are the most essential variables. But as we've considered more and more things in society and how people interact, this model gets more and more complicated. So, so, so go ahead. Let me just say that the things that we're considering, you know, again, are, are based on science. So I want to shout out to Doug Fry, who is our colleague who's on the team, who is an anthropologist. And he, for the past 30 years now, has been studying peaceful societies. So the, the good news, and uh, for those that may not be aware of this, is that he's identified over 100 societies around the world, everything from sort of more traditional villages, scaling all the way up to nations like Costa Rica and Norway and Sweden, 
who have now for Norway and Sweden in particular for hundred, uh, over 100 years been peaceful nations, not warring with their neighbors, not warring with other societies. Um, and so he's been studying peaceful societies, um, A, to refute the myth that uh, we, we are intrinsically as humans warriors or warlike. Um, there's, you know, not good evidence. There's actually evidence, good evidence to refute that. But he also wanted to, in studying these peaceful societies, identify what do they have in common. So if you look across these societies, what are the core conditions or factors or ways of life there that are common to them that seem to cut across them um, that we could then start to integrate into our model. So work like Doug's work, um, he's been a central figure in this, but there are others that study peace as well, um, is empirical research, either ethnographic, anthropological research, or survey research, or other kinds of observational research of these societies. And that's what we're gleaning these things from, these aspects or elements or conditions that we think are important and gathering them and then trying to understand how they kind of work over time, how they relate to each other, how they interact in complex ways, that's what we're using these diagrams to capture. All right. So so these diagrams are trying to capture really a lot of deep things in how people interact with each other on different levels and in different ways. So we have this diagram and uh, as Peter was describing it, not only from the work of Doug Fry, but from others in the group here, have put together a lot of different things that are important in how they connect with each other. So now we have this diagram. It's on a sheet of paper. It's actually usually on a whiteboard first, but eventually it gets to being on a sheet of paper. And uh, you have all these circles and arrows that connect to each other. And you can start to look at it and think, well, if this circle changes, how does it affect the next one? But that next one affects other ones. And so we try to trace through these different kinds of connections about what's happening. And, and um, that's, first of all, this diagram is very useful because it forces you to put down on paper or a whiteboard uh, what you think is going on. And if you do that in front of other people, you can discuss it Maybe there's something you've left out. Maybe someone thinks something is more important. Maybe there's a connection that's been missed. So the process of creating this diagram is just as important or maybe more important than the end point of having the diagram on the, on the piece of paper or in PowerPoint or wherever it lives. And so that's one thing, that this process helps you think things through. But once you have it, you want to use it. You want to say, if this thing is changing, how will it change all the other things in the whole system? So based on this causal loop diagram, um, this would be described in mathematical terms as a network. We have a number of things, and they influence each other. And it could also be described as a series of equations. So we can write down, if this thing is going to change by that much, how much it's going to change the other thing. The tremendous advantage in this is this means that we can compute how the whole thing interacts at the same time. This is much more difficult than going point circle to circle in, in the diagram. So in order to analyze diagrams like this, we use tools, some of which are old and some of which are new, from mathematics. So the types of equations we use, they've been around for 200 or 300 years. 
Um, we're using new tools from what's called network science about networks of people and computers and how they influence each other. And that's developed a series of methods that can help us maybe figure out which of these circles are more important in the diagram than others. And what we'd like to do is compare this to something in reality. And we already have some reality built into it because the people who have created this uh, in Peter's team and the research that Doug Fry has done and quite a number of other people are based on observations they've already had. So there's already some level of reality built into this, but what we'd like to do to see if we can get additional information on that. So we're also using some modern techniques usually go in um, the definition of big science with quotation marks. Uh, doing quotation marks on the radio doesn't work like this. But, um, or data science, right? Da data science, yeah, right. right. The, right. Official, the official name is, uh, is, is data science. So we can look, for example, at databases that a number of different groups have been developing over the last few years related to peace and wellness and... Um, how sufficient, uh, uh, sustainable sustainability in societies. So there's a lot of work on collecting data that then can give us an index or a measure of how well societies are doing, how fair they are, um, how are um, uh, human rights being maintained in the society. So there are a lot of databases we can look at. So we're starting to look at some of those things to measure what's in some of the circles. And we're also starting to look at some social media things. For example, uh, looking at Twitter feeds to try to get information about what people's feelings are about the past or about the future to get a sense of how things in the culture are interacting and where they're leading. So just to back up for a second, the, the value that I've learned in a, using causal loop diagrams is that you can take, you know, something as complicated as peace in a society and what, what drives that and start to, as Larry said, draw a picture of it that includes a lot of different things and how they affect each other. But to some degree, that just gives you a really complicated map <clears throat> of how different things affect other things. And that is, is a useful starting point in terms of bringing in all the research that's relevant, but it doesn't get you much farther than a metaphor that this is complicated and that everything's related. Then what Larry's models do is it takes those and A, it forces us to be much more specific about what it is we're talking about and what the relationships are between things. Um, but then B, they do create these you know equations, these algorithms, and then can create visualizations, computer games, really, of, of a society. And that eventually will allow us and researchers and policymakers to play with these games and say, all right, well, let's create a visualization game of Northern Ireland and let's look at what is happening there, what the kind of current status quo is of all of these variables in Northern Ireland. And then let's say, well, what if we invest a lot in education policy or invest a lot in border security or invest a lot in health care? Um, what impact might that have on the sort of intergroup relations um, in Northern Ireland that matter that lead to either more contentious relationships or more peaceful relationships? So one of the things ultimately this gives us 
is more precision in our understanding of some of these kind of basic dynamics. But uh, downstream, it, it, it has the potential of creating these um, interactive games that allow uh, that's game is a is a term that Larry will explain, but it it, it is a a model and something that you can work with and interact with to sort of try out ideas, try out interventions or policies in a particular community to see ultimately what unexpected things may come of that or will it have the effects that we hope it to have. Right. Once we take the causal loop diagram and turn it into equations or whatever mathematical form we're going to play with it, uh, now we can really play with it, Uh, as Peter was saying. So we can take one of the variables and increase it or decrease it and see how that change ripples and echoes through all the other variables in the system. And this allows us to try and explore different possibilities to see if we did this, how would it would affect that. Um, uh, so, for example, we could see... Um, if there were more, if there was a change in the social mores, if people were doing things that were worse or better in some ways, or those changed, how would that affect how people think about the present, or how how does that affect how they're going to think about the future? If there were more processes uh, that would resolve conflict within a system, uh, again, how would that affect what's in the present or what's in the future? And the reason why Peter's referring to it as a game is partly because I used that word at one point. So what I've been trying to make a distinction of, which is what Peter is indirectly referring or directly referring to, is we can make a model that has a lot of properties of a complex system, which means that uh, a little change here can affect a big change there. So a classic example of that is um, uh, the butterfly effect. So if a butterfly beats its wings in Beijing, it affects the local uh, air a little bit, which has bigger effects, which eventually cascade. So there's a thunderstorm in New York City a week later. And so systems in general have these complex systems properties. So we can make a model of what we think is necessary to sustain peace and all the factors involved in it, and it can behave with a lot of properties about a complex system. And I would call that a general model. Um, But it's only a game unless we can validate it. If we know that we see examples in other countries or other places where someone has made a specific change and then it has a specific effect, then we can have more confidence that the game we're playing is one that exists in uh, in the real world. So... Uh, what we're trying to do is to generate enough data or measurements of some of the factors in the causal loop diagram to see if they match what's in the mathematical model. So, for example, the mathematical model can predict that maybe people feel more emotionally positive about the future than the past. And then we could look on Twitter feeds to see if people are saying more emotionally positive things about the future than the past. So we're trying to relate what we see in the models to what we see out in the rest of the world. And then if that's the case, we can change some things in the model uh, that hasn't happened in the world and maybe hope that if we made the same changes in the world that those same effects would happen. So maybe another way to, to 
characterize what Larry just said is something I learned from him, which is that we could think about this as that ultimately we're trying to create two kinds of models of sustaining peace. One is a general model, a generic model, and, and it would be based on what the science has told us, our understanding of that, how we've started to put the variables together and see them, and then ultimately what the mathematics behind them um, tell us to do. And this is all, again, general, but this assumes like that peace everywhere is the same. It assumes that these basic dynamics are core everywhere. Well, what we might find is that when, when we, when we want to look in one side, say the Basque region of Spain that's coming out of a civil war or Northern Ireland, or we want to go into Mozambique and understand why the peace is currently being jeopardized there, what we could do is take that model, which has a core set of assumptions, but then in any particular society, really change the values and the strengths of the relationships of different variables based on what's happening there on the ground. And that would give us a, a, a better fit of a model to what's actually happening in a particular location. So the first kind of model, the general model, could be useful just to give you know policymakers and really scientists a sense of how nonlinear complex systems work, that if you go in and you invest a lot of money in, a, in New York City in police, it may not have the effects you think it's going to affect, you think it would have. You may think, well, let's put a lot of money over the next five years in increasing the number of police and training police and having good SWAT teams come in. And what you might see is it actually has the opposite effect of what you want to do. It might instill more resentment in the communities and there might be more violence or instability. So complex systems can have these weird effects that are not what we expect. So one of the things these general models do is it, it can demonstrate for policymakers and decision makers how complicated things don't work the way we usually think they work. But these specific models once we're informed, once we're confident enough in the general model, but informed enough in a specific location, can really allow local decision makers to, again, have perhaps a different tool for understanding what their policies may and may not do locally on the ground. Right. This is the standard jargon phrase is unanticipated consequences, that you do something and you think it's going to have a very specific effect and it turns out to have a very different effect. What, what's interesting is that um, in, um, in, in the physical sciences, we've tended to concentrate on isolated little systems. Not always, but sometimes. And what's fun about doing a project like this is this is a much more open, much more complicated system. And how do you deal with something that has so many moving pieces? And we can use some of the tools from physical sciences that have been developed for the last 250 years to address this, but we have to use them in a different way and, and see where they lead. So it's interesting to cross the boundary from isolated, well-determined, well-measured systems to something that's more amorphous that has many different pieces and and how do we use the tools we already have in order to deal with a system like that and learn and understand it one of the consequences of as larry said the last 250 400 years of 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 our approach to science is what we have tended to do is 
is sort of take something like a society and break it apart and look at the pieces. We look at the psychology of the individuals. We look at their values and beliefs. We look at the economic structure, opportunity structures. We look at the political systems. And so we tend to, in our disciplines, focuses, focus more deeply on those aspects of either peaceful societies or non-peaceful societies. But what we don't understand is how those different aspects connect to each other. And that really ultimately is our goal here, is to try to take that, those different areas of science from different disciplines and sectors, connect those dots so that we can see do they, how do they work, how do they relate to one, each other, to, to one another over time in some kind of dynamic way, and can we ultimately sort of model that and create these tools, these general or specific tools, to allow decision makers and policymakers to have a more realistic sense of how what they intend to do might affect any particular community. That's the goal. So that we, we do have this 10-year objective here. We're about three years into this project. We've made a lot of progress, but we've got a lot of way to go, and we're in desperate need of funding. So if there's anybody out there really excited about funding leading-edge research on sustaining peace, please do give us a call. Um, but we're ultimately planning to work over the next you know, seven or eight years to get to a place where we are, have sufficient confidence in the model and in the science behind the model um, that we could start to create an interactive website. The interactive website would have these general games, would have the capacity for policymakers or community individuals to work in these specific games so that they could start to really think about more carefully what they're doing in their communities to affect peace and what may be useful and may not be useful. Um, and we also just hope to make this thinking as accessible as possible to the general public. There are some basic principles that we're starting to understand that are useful for you know everyday life. Um, in some ways are very mundane, um, but they're important, particularly these days when our world and our nation is so divided and uh, there's so much hostility. So that's our long-term goal, is eventually to develop the project to a place where we feel confident enough to share it with both decision makers and the general public to make a difference. Larry, any closing comments? No, I just, as, as I already said, I think this has been fun for me to work with because it's sort of applying things from the physical sciences uh, to a situation which is much more difficult to understand. And a lot of physical science think you can't do that sort of stuff, but the reality is it makes it more challenging, and so it makes it interesting. And it's interesting for me to work with a group of people that are not only scholars and academics, but are actually involved in real-world applications of this. So there's a real sense that um, there's, there's a reality here, and that's both fun and challenging and sometimes a little scary, too. Well, Larry, thank you for your time today, and, uh, and again, thank you for being on this project. You bring in invaluable insights from the physical sciences to us social scientists uh, who um, admire your work very much. Right. So, so thanks for, for your time today, and um, thank you for listening. Right. Thank you. The music for this show was written and composed by Kevin Johnston and is titled Kingdom Stowaway. <laughs>